the Babylonian captivity after um, the nation had been split into two kingdoms and eventually the southern kingdom Judah was the only one left and then Nebuchadnezzar came in and conquered them and took them captive and Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego uh, people like that ended up being taken to Babylon and uh, they were in exile and Jerusalem laid waste and just laid desolate for years God burdened the heart of Nehemiah and Esther, or excuse me, Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah, God used them both to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem. Ezra, and during his time in the book of Ezra, you see the rebuilding of the temple, and that came first. More important to, to build the altar and then build the temple and, and get right with the Lord. And then after that came Nehemiah to rebuild the city that was torn down. The walls were broken down. And God used the two men together to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. But it had a lot of issues, a lot of things. And of course, they had a lot of baggage in their lives because of the Babylonian influence that they had. And so as they came back to Jerusalem, they had issues and they had people that they had to deal with. And Samballat and Tobiah and other people that uh, hindered their work and hindered the progress. In Nehemiah chapter 8, though, it, it shows how the two men worked together and, and it kind of gives the difference between the two. And it says in Nehemiah 8 verse 1, and all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate, and they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate, and from the morning until midday. And so all morning long he read the Bible to them while they stood there before the men and the women and those that could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law because it was rare. And he was reading it to them. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which they made for the purpose. Beside him, by the way, pulpits are in the Bible. Stages and bar stools are not. All right, keep going. And Ezra the scribe stood upon a pulpit of wood which they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Matthiah, and Shema, and Aniah, and Urijah, and Hilkijah, and Maasiah, and on his right hand, and on his left hand, Padiah, and Mishael, and Malchiah, and Hashem, and Hashbadana, and Zechariah, and Meshulam. And their job was this, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Yeshua and Bani and Sherebiah and Jamin and Akab and Shebathai and Hodijah and Maasiah and Kilatah and Azariah and Jazabad and Hanan and Peleiah and the Levites caused the people to understand the law. And the people stood in their place. So they read in the book of the law of God distinctly and gave the sense and caused them to understand the reading. Again, I want to stop and just say that that's what preaching and teaching is supposed to be. We don't need new versions of the Bible. We just need to have someone that can explain it and understand it. And, of course, you can have your own copy, and that's even better. But just to give the sense and cause them to understand the Word of God distinctly. And then it says in verse 9, And Nehemiah, which is the Tershatha, and Ezra the priest, the scribe, the Levites, that taught the people, said unto all the people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, neither weep, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law, because it was so precious to them and they probably realized how they weren't right with the Lord in some areas as they heard God's word being read Nehemiah was the Tershatha what is that or the governor he had legal authority over the over the city and Ezra of course was the scribe who had the word of God so these two men were both recognized as being men of God that God used and raised them up to to restore not only the physical condition of the temple and the physical condition of the city and the walls, but also the purity of the people. It happened in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We, we see where they recognized there were issues that they had to deal with. And mo in both cases, it was towards the end of the books. So with that, we go to Nehemiah chapter 13, the last chapter. After they got the city rebuilt and they had quite a celebration about the accomplishment of that. Nehemiah went back to Babylon to report at what was going on. And while he was gone, things changed quickly. And when he returned, he found some things already changed from what it ought to have been before. Ezra earlier had had to deal with the same issue. So as you're in Nehemiah chapter 13, keep your finger there and go back just one book to Ezra chapter 9. 
In Ezra chapter 9, Ezra found, and he had to deal with the same issues. In Ezra 9, in verse 1, it says, Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Jebusites and the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Egyptians and the Amorites, where they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, that, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and of the rulers hath been chief in this trespass. In other words, some of the chief people of the city and the rulers and princes and priests have been involved in this. Verse 3, And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle and plucked off my, the hair of my head and, and my beard, and I sat down astonished. Then were assembled unto me every one that trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the transgression of those that had been carried away. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose up for my heaviness and Having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God and said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head and our trespasses grown up unto the heavens. And he begins to pray. We'll pick up with Ezra in a little bit later. What we find here then is when Nehemiah returns back to the city in Nehemiah 13 verse 1, on that day they read in the book of the Moses in the audience of the people, and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever, because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated from Israel all the mixed multitudes. So the law is Deuteronomy 23. And in Deuteronomy 23, verses 3 through 6, they read where you're not supposed to have this mixed multitude and, and this mixed marriages and things like that. And, and so they started to realize we need to do something here. And Nehemiah started to recognize some issues going on and things that were happening. This is a reoccurring problem. As a matter of fact, back in Exodus chapter 12, verse 38, when the people uh, left Egypt, the Bible says, and that's the other time you'll find it, a mixed multitude went with them. Now, it's not wrong necessarily that a mixed multitude go with them because if they get saved, they will no longer be part of that mixed multitude. However, if they don't get saved and adopt God's ways, then what happens is, is the mixed multitude then starts to have an influence on the people of God. And that happened even in the, in the Old Testament times of the wilderness wandering. In Exodus chapter 12, I told you that, but now Numbers chapter 11 wasn't long before this mixed multitude started to have an impact on them. In Numbers 11 and verse 4, it says, And the mixed multitude that was among them fell a lusting. And there, that is why the murmuring started and wanting flesh to eat. I want to just stop here with our finger in Nehemiah and go to the New Testament for a minute to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Bible tells us that the Old Testament stories are written for us to learn from. <clears throat> They're given to us <clears throat> to see and to learn and understand some things. <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 10, in verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the law, under, under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did all eat the same spiritual meat, and did drink the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that rock, spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So there's pictures here, there's examples here being given types. Verse 5, but with many of them God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things were examples, are examples. To the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted, neither be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play, and the golden calf, and all that took place there. Verse 8, neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed, and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of the serpents. Verse 10, neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. We need to recognize that God's given us examples in the Bible to help us to know <clears throat> the right thing to do and the principle that we find in God's word. Not everything necessarily is spelled out, but everything in the word of God teaches a principle and a concept that God would have us to know. 
And so we see this with Ezra and Nehemiah. And there's very similar times that we live in right now. We live in a country where the founding fathers and the founding of our nation is much different than what we have today. <clears throat> and the restoration of that, even at our best, is still falls short of, of what I believe was the good days of America because America was a much more godly nation at one time. We are to be in the world, the Bible says. John chapter 17, Jesus is praying. And Jesus said this in his prayer in John 17. And I just want to read a few verses of it, John 17, 15. I pray not that thou shouldest take them. He's talking about his disciples. Verse 15 of John 17, he says, I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them or separate them in a way. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. So on one hand, he wants us to be in the world. But on the other hand, he does not want us to be of the world. In the world, but not of the world. We see that in another place, and it's spelled out for us quite clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse number 9, it says, I wrote unto you in an epistle not to keep, not to company with fornicators. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or with idolaters, for then must ye needs go out of the world. In other words, let me just say it. Stop and explain that. I wrote unto you not to keep company with fornicators. However, I didn't mean the unsaved fornicators of this world. Otherwise, you'd have to get on a rocket ship and go to the moon because the world's full of unsaved people. Verse 11, but now I have written, in other words, we are to be witnesses and we are to to reach the lost. And so we are to have uh, uh, some intermingling with the world, but we're not to be of the world. Verse 11, but now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother be a fornicator or covetous or idolater or a railer or a drunkard or an extortioner, but such an one know not to eat. For what have I to do to judge them that also that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within, but them that are without, God judgeth. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. And so he's talking to the church at Corinth. And, and if you read the first part of the chapter, there was someone that was doing something very wrong. And he was saying, look, it's not that you can't associate with someone because in the world you're trying to win your neighbor. You're trying to win your coworker. You're trying to win them to the Lord Jesus Christ. However, someone who calls himself a brother, who says that they know the scriptures, and yet they want to do those things, that's somebody you need to separate from. So the Bible teaches this concept of separation in the Old Testament, as we're seeing tonight, and in the New Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we have this, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Oh, what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. You, you are. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And so God expects and teaches. Our God is a holy God. He expects us to live wholly separated lives, but he doesn't expect us to be Amish or to blast off to the moon or to just go somewhere by ourselves. He expects us to be in the world, but not of the world. He expects the Christian to be a light and to be salt, as we heard last week, to be a a difference maker, not to have someone make a difference in our life, but that we would make a difference in someone else's life. That is the difference here. And so, be not unequally yoked. I think that applies to Obviously, marriage, and we'll talk more about that in a minute, but it applies also to just partnering in most any way. Be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's unwise. And so I want to say point number one, the relationship that Nehemiah had to teach these people concerning the mixed multitude. The relationship, there are people, unfortunately, sometimes even in churches, maybe even in our church, who have relations. I'm not talking about just acquaintances. I'm talking about fixed, yoked up relationships with the mixed multitude. It taints everything. 
I don't even know it's tr- if it's true, but I, I saw it again today, and I haven't done my own research, but I see it all the time, that NIH, the head of the NIH, is, what is that, National Institute of Health, is married to Fauci. So do you think she's going to treat him? You see what, we see what yoked up stuff does? It, it, it does not baffle your mind sometimes when you find out that this person up in politics is married to this person high up in media. There's a lot of this stuff that goes on and it becomes, uh, it becomes a real problem, especially if there's wickedness involved. The relationship with the mixed multitude. Watch out for that. But then also notice, as we keep reading in Nehemiah 13, the relationships to the false professors. Verse 4. And before this, Eliashib the priest, having the oversight of the chamber of the house of our God, was allied unto Tobiah. Tobiah. Samballot and Tobiah. These people were not Jews. They were not Israelites. You go back to chapter 2 and verse 19 and 20, it says, of Nehemiah 2, 19, but when Sembalat the Horonite and Tobiah the servant the Ammonite and Geshem the Arabian heard that they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, what is this thing that you do? Will you rebel against the king? Then answered I them and said unto them, the God of heaven, he will prosper us. Therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But ye have no portion, nor right, nor memorial in Jerusalem. You have no portion. This is, has nothing to do with you. Chapter 4 and verse 3, we see Tobiah, this very same man, mocking the building of, of the people that, and Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 4.3, no, Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, even that which they build of a fox go up, he shall even break down their stone wall. So they mocked them, and they tried to discourage them. And he comes home from his trip, and he finds this very Ammonite living inside the temple, the house of God. What are you doing? How did this happen? Eliashib the priest. It says he was allied. I think if you dig into it, you'll find that he was allied through marriage. Son or son or grandson married into Tobiah's family, vice versa. And there was an ally thing going on there. What in the world? So see what happens next. Now, by the way, where's Tobiah living? Well, here's where he's living. Verse 5. And he prepared for him. Eliashib prepared for Tobiah a great chamber where where aforetime they had laid the meat offering and the frankincense and the vessels and the tithes of the corn, the new wine and the oil, which was committed to be given to the Levites and to the singers and the porters and the offerings of the priests. In other words, he let him stay in the place that's supposed to house the tithes for the Lord. But in all this time was not I... At Jerusalem, for in the two and thirtieth year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, came I unto the king, and after certain days obtained I leave of the king. Verse 7, And I came to Jerusalem and understood of the evil that Eliashib did for Tobiah in preparing him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me sore. Therefore I cast forth all the household stuff of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I commanded, and they cleansed the chambers, and thither brought again the vessels of the house of God with the meat offering and the frankincense. I don't think Tobiah, or or excuse me, I don't think Nehemiah could run for office today. I'd vote for him, but I'm not sure how many people would because he went in there and grabbed everything that belonged to Tobiah and hauled it out and chucked it. It don't belong in here. I mean, that's what he did. And then it says in verse 10, and I perceived that the portions of the Levites had not been given them. The the, the, the Levites hadn't been paid from the tithes because the tithes weren't being given. For the Levites and the singers did the work and they fled everyone to his field. They They were scared. They were out of power. Tobiah was living in God's house. Then contended I with the rulers and said, why is the house of God forsaken? So the third point, notice the relationship to their house of God. They had forsaken it and allowed it to become desecrated and to become tainted. And I gathered them together and set them in their place, then brought all the 
Judah the tithes of the corn and of the new wine and the oil into the treasuries. And I made the treasurers over the treasuries, Shilamiah and the priests, and Zedek the tribe and the, of the Levites, Pedaiah, and the next to them was Hanan the son of Zachar and the son of Metaniah, for they were counted faithful, and their office was to distribute unto their brethren. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for the offices thereof. He said, I straightened it out. I said, you, the, the priests aren't being taken care of. The Levites aren't being taken care of with the tithes. The people aren't bringing tithes because Tobiah is sitting in the middle of it. The fox is guarding the hen house. He gets rid of the fox and tosses everything out and says, you guys get back in here. And he set up some men and said, you make sure, you are honest, you make sure that the distribution is taken care of and that the Levite priests are doing their job and the singers are doing their job because that's what the house of God's supposed to have. Why is God's house forsaken, he asked in verse 11. It just takes a little bit of compromise and a little bit of fudging here and there. And Eliashib says, well, you know, Tobiah is my son-in-law. He's really a nice guy, and I think it'd be okay if we let him in. I mean, why not? Listen, this is how it starts. This is the story of churches all over America. Not tonight, but about 20, 30, or 50, or 100 years ago, and tonight. This is how it goes. So once the sin and the disobedience is removed, then growth begins, and People are excited to bring their offerings again because they, they can see that it's, it, it's, it's on track and it's not being despised. See, honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. Proverbs chapter 3 says. Malachi 3 says, bring all the tithes. Will a man rob God? These people were robbing. And so notice their relationship with the mixed multitude had to get straightened out. The relationship with false professors like Tobiah had to get straightened out. And the relationship to the house of God had to get straightened out. And then number four, the relationship to the Lord's day. To the day that they were to honor God with. And of course in the Old Testament that would be the Sabbath day. So verse 15 it says, of chapter 13 it says, In those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath, and bringing in sheaves and lading asses as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. And there dwelt men of Tyre, that's people from out of town, way up north, also therein, which brought fish, and all manner of ware, and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah, and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah, and said unto them, What evil thing is this that ye do, and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus... And did not our God bring all this evil upon us? He's saying, did not your fathers do the same thing? And isn't that why this city got destroyed in the first place? And yet you bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, Friday night, I commanded that the gates should be shut and charged that they should not be opened till after the Sabbath. And some of my servants said I at the gates, that there should no burden be brought in on the Sabbath day. So the merchants and sellers of all kind of ware lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. A couple weeks they kept hanging around. Friday night, Saturday, they'd camp outside the gate waiting for us to open it. Verse 21, Then I testified against them, and said unto them, Why lodge ye about the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. Hey, what are you doing out there? This is the second week in a row you camped outside the gate. You back next week, I'm going to lay hands on you. From that time forth came they no more on the Sabbath day. Nehemiah sounds like a guy who means what he says. He was motivated by God, and he would stop and say, Oh, God, remember this. Oh, God, the good hand of my God upon me. God, remember what I'm trying to do. I, I, I. Anyway, verse 22, And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves, and they should come and keep the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O oh my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. So we see here, the relationship to what their Old Testament day was the Sabbath, the seventh day. Now, 
without getting into this too much, I just want to tell you that the New Testament teaches us that it is now the Lord's Day that we recognize. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and Jesus has conquered death, and he has risen again. And so the resurrection happened on the first day of the week. We call it the Lord's Day because it comes straight out of the Bible. Let me show you, first of all, Acts chapter 20. Now, we know from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus rose again on what day of the week? The first day of the week. So it is no coincidence that you find them meeting on the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20 and verse, 20, verse 7. Acts 20 and verse 7. And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow. Then go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Again, speaking about tithes and offerings, notice this. 1 Corinthians 16 verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store, as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. I think that's just a clear explanation that it is the first day of the week that we are to collect the offerings, the, the tithes. As God has, has prospered you individually, whatever your 10% is individually, and then anything else you want to give on top of that is an offering. And what day, day, what day did they collect the offerings? First day of the week. <clears throat> and that's what we try to do here. We just try to just keep, keep it low and simple. And I've been to churches where, man, every time they had a meeting, they, they passed the plate. I don't know if they're desperate for money, if that's just what they do. But I just figure if we're right with the Lord, it won't, we won't have to keep waving the plate in front of people's face. But on the first day of the week, let everyone lay by him in store as God has prospered him. And then notice what Revelation chapter 1 says. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 10, John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. That we know then is the first day of the week. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. <clears throat> Even to this day in Israel, I've been there, and in Israel they do not recognize Sunday as any kind of a special day. Their special day, unfortunately, is still the Sabbath because they do not recognize Jesus in the New Testament and the re resurrection of Christ. <clears throat> it is really goofy. I mean, they, I don't want to get off on too much of a rabbit trail, but they actually have elevators in the hotels that go up every floor and stop at every floor on Saturday so that you don't have to push any buttons. But these folks were, were profaning the Sabbath. And folks, the reason why America has always had Sundays as a, as a day off is not because of the NFL. The reason why Sundays, the reason why it says right in our Constitution and Articles, it says Sundays accepted concerning three business days. Sundays were accepted. That's not considered a business day. And it's signed in the year of our Lord. And we need to recognize that our nation understood Sunday as a different day, a special day, more than any other day of the week. But unfortunately, people are thinking of Sunday as part of their weekend. A lot of your secular calendars have Monday as the first day of the week. And Sunday's just your, your weekend. But if you're a Christian, that's not how we think. It's the first day of the week. It is God's day. It is the Lord's day. What day do you imagine the Lord's table should be observed on? The Lord's day. And, and so Nehemiah is getting after these people and saying, what are you doing? You're having business on what there would have been their day, the, the holy day, the Sabbath day of the Old Testament. What are you doing? What's going on here? And so he had to deal with the relationship to the special day that God had set aside for them. And again, we can talk about that more later if you'd like to know more about it. And then number five, back in Nehemiah chapter 13. <clears throat> Let me read you again the first three verses and then we'll go down to verse 23. In Nehemiah 13, on that day, they read in the book of Moses in the audience of the people and therein was found written that the Ammonite and the Moabite should not come into the congregation of God forever. 
because they met not the children of Israel with bread and with water, but hired Balaam against them that he should curse them. Howbeit our God turned the curse into a blessing. Now it came to pass when they had heard the law that they separated <clears throat> from Israel all the mixed multitude. So in verse 23, he says, In those days also saw I Jews that had married wives of Ashdod and Amnon, Ammon and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod, and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. The relationships in marriage. What was happening here? You've got a bunch of half and half children. Now, in case you think that this is about racism, this is not. This is about people who don't believe in their God. Can you think of any Moabite woman in the Bible that got married to an Israelite and God blessed her and she's now the grandmother of King David? See, this is not about this is not about just the ethnicity or the race. This was about marrying people who were Ammonites and Ashdodites and Hittites who were not going to proselytize who were not going to convert. They were going to hang on to their old religion and their old ways. This is about being unequally yoked. See, the Bible, the Bible never really endorses this concept as I was taught as a young man. I was taught that black people and white people shouldn't marry. That's what I was taught. And it wasn't until later with more maturity that I realized that's not right. That's not what the Bible's teaching. It's funny how some people are more opposed to skin color matching up than they are if unsaved and saved match up. I do think there's some real wisdom in recognizing different cultures when you think about marriage and coupling and things like that. Recognize that cultures could be a real conflict for you. But the worst conflict of all is when saved marries unsaved. And if you, if you doubt that, we'll prove that that's what he's talking about here in just a few minutes. That's what God meant. But what it produces is half and half. Children who speak the language of foreigners, not just the language, but the religion of foreigners, and could not speak in the Jews' language. They were mixed how are you going to worship God when you can't even speak the language? How are you going to understand the word of God and understand God when, you're, when your mother is one thing and your dad's another? And Nehemiah got a little bit harsh. This is why I don't think he could run for office today. Because it says in verse 25, And I contended with them, and cursed them, and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, Remember, Ezra plucked off his own hair. Nehemiah plucked off their hair. And made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. No mixed marriages. It's wrong. We can't have half and half, because what does half and half lead to? It leads to more and more, and there's, there's, everything's lost. Everything we've just built is going to be destroyed because they don't have a clue what it's about. And then he says in verse 26, don't you remember Solomon? Anybody know what Solomon is most known for? What is the most, what is the most popular thing about Solomon? He was the wisest man in all the world. He says, did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who was beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. I looked up the word outlandish, and I realized what it means. It means outlandish. Outland, foreign land. It means someone who's not of us. And he sang, Solomon was the wisest man in the world, and he allowed women to to lead him astray. So don't tell me you're going to be different. 
he had says in verse 27, he said, So shall we then hearken unto you to do all these great, this great evil and to transgress against our God and marrying strange wives? How can we believe that you're going to straighten out these strange wives when King Solomon couldn't do it? That's what he's saying. If he couldn't handle it, you're not going to handle it either. Verse 28, And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sambalat, the Horonite. This, this Eliashib was a mess. This Eliashib made compromises and had marriages in his family with these Sambalats and Tobias. And, and, and so, let me read it again. Verse 28, And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, and the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite, was, was son-in-law to him. Therefore, I chased him from me. That's why he doesn't run for political office today. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers and appointed the wards of the priests and the Levites, every one in his business. And for the wood offering at times appointed and for the first fruits, remember me, O my God, for good. Well, I'll just say it this way. Nehemiah was kind of your John Wayne type. We could use some more of them today, especially if they're godly. But we don't, have, we don't have the population to tolerate that. I drive a school bus. Used to be you could pull over on the side of the road, open the door, and say, out. You walk home. Used to be you could carry a rifle on the bus and shoot a deer on the way home on your bus. We live in a, we live in a world of, of pansies, it seems like, and everything's got to be politically correct. And I realize that I am not in that world. So, in case you're wondering, I have never, to my, to my memory anyway, pulled out anyone's hair or chased anyone from me or even cursed anyone. But I do believe that we are to still have the understanding of Nehemiah and also the broken heart of Ezra. So let's go back to Ezra and look at chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10. Ezra's brokenhearted. He too did very <clears throat> specific and drastic things as, as Nehemiah, but he was the priest, not the governor, and so he handled it maybe a little bit differently. And Ezra chapter 10, it says, and he, we left him, he was praying. Remember, he was praying and begging God and telling him he was blushing. In Ezra chapter 10, verse 1, Now when Ezra had prayed and when he had confessed weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, and the people wept very sore. And Shechaniah, the son of Jeliel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So the men came to Ezra and said, we know we've done wrong, and we need to do something right about it now. God hates divorce, that's true. But on top of that, God hates this mixed marriage. That's not right. That should have never happened in the first place. You disobey God's laws, and that's wrong. What are we going to do about it? We need to put them away. Did you notice in verse 3? All the wives and such, what is the next phrase? And such as are what? Verse 9, it says, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together unto Jerusalem within three days. And it was the ninth month, and on the twentieth day of the month, and all the people sat in the street of the house of God, trembling because of this matter, and for the great rain that God was allowing to rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said unto them, Ye have transgressed and have taken strange wives and to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. Wasn't easy, but this is what we got to do. Verse 18, And among the sons of the priests, there were found that had taken strange wives, namely of the sons of Jehua, and the son of Jozadak, and his brethren, and Messiah, and Eliezer, and Jerob, and Gedaliah, and they gave their hand, 
they gave their hands that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their trespass. Of the sons of Immer, and Hanani, and Zebediah, and of the sons, and you just read name after name after name after name after name who had to do this to get things squared away. And you know what's really strange? I don't know of any other book that ends quite like this. But it's just a bunch of names until you get to the last verse. And it says, all these had taken strange wives. Colon. And some of them had wives by whom they had children. Years ago, I was sitting in a meeting, and they were talking about feeding the poor. And it was talked about and discussed how the parents are responsible to feed their children, you think. But the parents don't take care of the children, so we have to. You know who God gave the parents to, or the kids to? The parents. I don't know how many starving children we'd have to have around here before people would start getting right with God. But as long as we got welfare and government, we will never see people get right with God. We will always see people buy drugs and alcohol and tobacco and everything else because government's going to take care of the kids. The last verse in Ezra says, and some of them were kids. <gasps> well, we can't do it to the kids. They did it to the kids. Nehemiah didn't do it to the kids. Ezra didn't do it to the kids. Mom and dad did it to the kids. Could they have been like Ruth? Could they have been like Ruth? Yes. But they chose not to be like Ruth. That doesn't make it my fault. You say, how, pastor, can you say that? Listen to me. I have a God who allowed a 70-year-old boy named Joseph to get sold as a slave in Egypt, and yet he took care of him. I have a God that allowed Daniel and his friends to get sold and turned into eunuchs. But God still used them greatly. I am not saying that I wish on anybody's children hardship. But I know this, that my God can take care of kids better than I can. Better than anybody can. And it is never right to do wrong to do right. But what about the children? In Joshua chapter 7, there's a man named Achan who stole and then hid the stolen stuff under his tent floor. And they found him and they found the stuff. And the Bible says that Achan and Mrs. Achan and all his house were stood out in the middle and were stoned to death. I don't like that. I drive a school bus. I've even had kids from that school bus stay in my home for four months to the point where we fell in love with them. And to this day, we still try to bring them to church as much as we can. And we do it for any children. But I cannot, I cannot endorse what mom and dad do for the sake of the children. I have to honor my God instead. And if those children have a humble heart, they'll say, I got a taste of what a real family looks like and I want that when I get older. And if there were any children at the end of Ezra who had to be turned away from their Israelite daddy because of his stupidity and had to go back with mom to whatever foreign country it was, if any of those kids had a desire for God, I guarantee you God saw it and did something about it. Not a doubt in my mind. 
And so when you see what Ezra and Nehemiah had to deal with, you've got to understand these are real people and real situations. And there's no doubt in my mind why Ezra ends that way. Because it's heavy. Because it's left that way on purpose as if, oh. But as long as our society enables those children will grow up and do the same thing 99.9% of the time. And that's why the Bible says these things are written for our examples that we can learn from. We heard a sermon on Samson the other night. Do you remember what Samson said in Judges chapter 14? In Judges chapter 14, the first three verses, Samson said to his parents, I saw a Philistine girl, I want her. And his parents said, is there not an Israelite girl anywhere that you could? No, I want her. It's a violation of God's law. It's wrong. And we teach that here. We teach our young people here. Do not look at the Philistine girls. What do you, what do you mean by Philistine? The unsaved. The girls of this world, the strangers of this world, the girls who are not Christian, not just the ones who maybe claim to be Christian, but truly are born again, and it's obvious. Don't be unequally yoked together. Let's go back there and read it one more time before we finish tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10 says, Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will walk, dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be a father unto you. And ye should be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. A couple months ago, not a couple weeks ago, not a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, I decided that the Wednesday after John Getch's here, we would start teaching on the idea of courtship and relationships and dating and marriage. If you want to marry in the Lord, make sure that you are courting in the Lord. I was taught that when I was a kid. If you wouldn't want, if you know God wouldn't want you to marry her, don't date her. Don't be unequally yoked. Recognize what God would have you to do and do it. We have Christians everywhere. They go to the schools together. Most of them are going to public schools, and so they, they just get so used to everything. And, and, and any little thing Christian becomes the light, but truly it is not much. It is salt that's been contaminated. There isn't revival going on. People talk about, oh, the crowd we had. The crowd you had because you ain't preaching truth. You're just giving sugar. The same Christian kids are getting drunk and flipping cars and killing people from Christian families. And yet God loves the stranger. But he can't endorse or put a stamp of approval on disobedience and sin. He can't do it. But God loves the stranger. If God could allow a little baby boy named Moses to go live in Pharaoh's palace, he can handle all the heartbreaking stories you got to tell me. He can. Better than you and I can. He can deal with it. We've got to trust him and have faith in him. If Abraham can pick up a knife and kill the son he loved, knowing that God's going to have to restore him back to life, then parents ought to be able to trust God with their children. Rather than saying, I can do it better than God. I can't do it better than God. I don't, there's nobody who can. We must trust him.
And so what we must understand from this tonight is that the man of God's job is to make sure that the house of God stays clean and the people of God stay clean and that there is mercy and grace offered and available, but at the same time, we can't change and we can't say, well, but it's such a difficult issue here and so let's go ahead and let Tobiah live. We cannot do that. If Tobiah wants to get right with God, we can. If the Moabite wants to convert like Ruth did, we can. But otherwise, we just have to make a tough decision because of a lack of responsibility that someone else makes. And this is the Bible teaching that I learned and have been studying. And we need to recognize the importance of being right with God more than any other person on planet Earth. And I just want to say again, in case there's any doubt, I have not pulled out anyone's hair or chased anyone from me or given anyone a hard time about anything other than to tell them or preach to them truth. <clears throat> and every person in Custer County is welcome to come to our church. Bad attitudes probably aren't welcome for a very long time. But every person is welcome to come to Mountain View Baptist Church and to sit and congregate. But not everyone is welcome to be a member unless they're right with God. And that should sober all of us, including me. And there's some tough lessons to learn as we see these people trying to rebuild and restore. And for leaders, you see Nehemiah and Ezra and say, wow, I'm glad you guys are in there. I'm glad, I'm glad I have somebody to read about. And for young people, I got a question for everybody in this room. We sang my mother's old Bible. Don't raise your hand. But how many of you really had a mother who had an old Bible? You don't need to raise your hand. But the reason why I ask you that question is, wouldn't you like your kids or your grandkids to sing that about your Bible? Well, how do you get that? By not compromising. By not mixing the marriages. See, my parents couldn't sing that either. But they determined to follow God, and so I do have a mother who has an old Bible. And my kids are going to have a mother's old Bible someday. But somebody's got to start somewhere and break the cycle of dysfunction and say, we're going to do this right. We're going to follow God. And that's when you get better. I don't think any other president since then can, can point to this, but I've seen it with my own eyeballs in California at the Reagan Library. I've seen his mother's old Bible. Opened to Second Chronicles 7.14 with her handwriting in the margin. We need some more leaders who have a mother's old Bible. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for things in there that are not necessarily noticeable or very influential at the moment, but later on we realize why they're there, why you put